0: I have lost my singing bowl that I ring. I've got to find it. It's somewhere between here and there. If you find it, I'd like to have it back. Good morning. Would you check and make sure that your cell phone is in the off position? I'm tempted to say that if you have questions, reactions, comments about today's class that you email me through the website or directly, that's easy to do. Holly and I are going to respond to today's class next Sunday. You'll you'll find out more about that as we plot along here. Also, next Sunday at the 8.30 service and at the 11 o'clock service. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but nonetheless, come. I'll be preaching both those services and here. I won't be preaching here. I never preach here. (laughs) So I'm glad you're here. And thanks to the crew back there that makes this effortless and possible. So... um, Let's begin as we do in silence. Do what you need to do to get yourself in the space. Put your feet on the floor and take a deep breath. And If it works for you to close your eyes, you can do that. If not, stare at the floor or at your hands. Just be present and open. Try to be here. I find it helpful to give thanks just for being anywhere for this time in our lives and for the people who are gathered here. And my hope and desire is that you find what you're looking for by coming here. That In particular, you find peace and joy, and to know that in this time we honor the values of love and truth and freedom, and we do so with the belief that all people benefit from what we do here. Amen. So, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, So, uh, during this time today, I uh, have a task to accomplish, and you have a task to accomplish. My task is to give this talk that I have written, and your task is to listen to it. And it is my fervent goal and hope that I finish my task before you finish yours. (laughs) So um, the title that I have given to this talk today is, Is God Still Dead? And I hope that by the time I'm finished, that question makes sense. And that it also makes sense why I'm both beginning and ending talking about churches and cathedrals, and also as a side benefit of this time today, you will learn why God is (laughs) left-handed. So I had the idea for this talk while attending a Roman Catholic Mass. Let me tell you how that came about. On our recent trip to England, we ended up spending additional time in London. The St. Paul's Choir was going to sing in residence at um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And um, St. Paul's Cathedral um, began being built in 1675. That's 100 years before this country was organized. Um, St. Paul's was designed by Sir Christopher Wren who is considered to be one of the greatest architects in all of history. Uh, After the great London fire, Christopher Wren was charged with the responsibility of rebuilding 52 churches in London alone. Uh, He did other epic architectural work as, as well. Now, Sherry and I had been to London twice before, and we had done all the London things that tourists are supposed to do, right, ridden the double-decker bus and gone to the wax museum and, you know, all the stuff that people are supposed to do, theater and opera and all that sort of stuff. And our hotel where we stayed in London was almost literally across the street from St. Paul's. So we could walk out the hotel, turn left, and there it was. So having been to London before and spent quite a bit of time there, I even sussed out a magic shop once years ago there. It was fun. We just started walking down Ludic Hill to see what we could see. And on the way back, we walked way down the street looking for an ATM and something to eat, and then we came back. On the way back, we encountered the Church of St. Martin within Ludic. And notice that it was one of the churches that Christopher Wren had designed. So it was open, and if you look at it, you can see St. Paul's down the street. Um, this and it almost looks like a storefront I mean if you're on the street you can't see up and see the steeple so if it had not been for the sign that I just accidentally saw I wouldn't have known that that's where we were and it was open and I suggested that let's go in and look around and so as we entered a man like an usher um, said to us mass is about to begin would you like to stay and you know that's an invitation that it's sort of hard to turn down when it's right there, about to begin. So we stayed. And there could not have been more than ten people in this place, including us. The priest came in, and he did a complete mass, including a homily, which wasn't bad, by the way. Uh, by the way, for those of you who don't know, the word mass comes from a Latin word at the end of the service. Called, uh, that's uh, the word that we get dismissal from. So miss, mass, is where that comes from. Sending forth is what it means. So I'll give you a brief uh, religious literacy bit on why and how churches in the Anglican tradition, such as ours, structure worship the way that we do. The early Jesus followers, being Jewish, just continued their Jewish worship in their homes, likely. So they had the service of the Word, which consisted of the reading of the Law and the Prophets, and then maybe singing from the Psalms, and some interpretation or interpolation of that. And as the Christian, as the followers of Jesus began to read into the Jewish Scripture their their uh, understanding of the scripture in light of their experience with Jesus, then those things got they became our gospels, our memoirs. The memoirs of the apostles were read there. Then they added to that Jewish service, the service of the table, so they would have a, a fellowship meal as part of their worship service, and they would have communion. That would be their communion service. The word service, the table. We still do that, and. Um, Historians say that this pattern of worship continued until the early part of the fourth century when There began to be power struggles in the church and in the organized group. And then eventually Constantine got his hands on the church and that changed everything. The movement began to get co-opted by the Roman Empire. The church leaders susceptible to power and position, just like people are today, started copying stuff from the Roman Senate. That's why some of the clergy garb looks the way it does. And um, uh, they began to incorporate that into the worship. So worship soon uh, after uh, the first part of the 4th century started being done in Latin. And um, things perked along pretty much that way with corruption and um, complexity, just like life, just like life today. Until in England in the early part of the 16th century... The King of England, Henry VIII, couldn't get the Pope to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn. So in a conniption fit, he started the Church of England, which was the Catholic Church, except they started doing the, church, the service in English. And uh, they changed to using the Apostles' Creed instead of the Nicene Creed. Otherwise, otherwise, the worship remained pretty much the way it is in the, in the Catholic Church. Um, when the Methodist denomination got started in the United States, they just co-opted the form of worship from the English Church, the Church of England, which is what this, our church is kind of high Anglican Methodist Church. And we have that same kind of worship service. And for some reason that I have never, ever, ever been able to find a satisfactory answer for, John Wesley decided to drop out of the Apostles' Creed, which the Church of England, the Methodist Church, and we use, he dropped out of the Apostles' Creed the phrase, descended into hell. So every other church that uses the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. And that, but we don't, we don't say that. So at any rate, here we are in this church designed by Christopher Wren. I'm sure intended to be a church of England, but now a Roman Catholic. We're going to Mass, and we get to the Creed. Now the Catholics don't use the Apostles' Creed. They use the Nicene Creed. And not only do they use the Nicene Creed, they use a form of the Nicene Creed, which is called the Ordinate Creed, and you can look this up on Wikipedia, I'm sure, and find it. But both the Anglican churches, I'm not sure about Episcopal Church here, I didn't check that out, but the Anglican churches in, in England and the Roman Catholic churches that use English use this form of the creed. Now, I want to insert something here. There there have been any number of people who have said to me that they can't say the creed in church because they can't take it literally and all that. I understand that. I got that. I clearly uh, sympathize with that. Um, I would totally support our using another creedal statement as part of our worship. Uh, There are plenty of options available, but... um, you try to introduce something like that into the church, and you're in big trouble. When I first came on the f- staff here, even before I was officially on the staff, and before our sacristry had been redone, there was a bulletin board, a court board in the sacristry, and there was an old faded cartoon on the court board that showed a clergyman about to be hung. You could tell he was clergy because of his garb and he had the rope around his neck and the hangman was standing next to him and the hangman was saying to him what did you do and the clergy said i changed the order of service (laughs) however i do want you to know that when the creeds were composed um, the word literal did not exist And no one took the creed literally. The word literal did not come into use in the English language until around 1450. Get it? It wasn't literal when the creeds were written. It wasn't literal when the gospels were written. Just try to keep that in mind if you ever encounter a fundamentalist. So the Nicene Creed, used by some Christians today, gets its name from the First Council of Nicaea, which was not called by the church, by the way, but was called by Constantine. Because Constantine said, you guys got to get your act together. If I'm going to make you the official religion of the Roman Empire, you have to agree on what you believe. Because up until then, there was a lot of diversity in the in the Christian movement. So the council was held in 325, but the creed wasn't formally adopted until probably close to 400 381 something like that so the the 385 creed is really brief much briefer than the one we use which you can say almost in one breath you cannot do that to the nicene creed so here it is part of it we believe in one god the father almighty now i'm reading this in the mass you get the picture We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, sorry women, and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, He was crucified for us near Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he goes on and on. Now when we studied the creeds in the church, in the seminary, our professor used this creed to establish the fact that God is left-handed. Because it says right there in the creed that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God the Father (laughs) Almighty. Not at or near, but on. And that is the version that Anglicans and Catholics who do the service in English read to this very day. I kid you not. Now, unless you grew up under a rock. Whether you went to church as part of your growing up or not, you inherited this. You grew up with this theistic notion of God who was a male with a beard as part of your worldview. By the way, if you grew up under that rock, can I have it sometime? (laughs) There is just so much going on in the world that I am so tired of. If you can't read the caption on the cartoon, the woman is saying, just go away. Ten years ago, we took an educational tour of what's known as the Lake District of Italy, and it was full of opportunities to see Gothic architecture, art ruins, works of art and the like, and very late in the tour, our guide asked me if I would like to see a picture of God, and I said, "Who? yes, we wouldn't, so we eventually went into this grotto where, because of atmospheric conditions and all that, there was this incredibly well-preserved, fresco, dating from the 14th century, and sure enough, there was a picture of God. (laughs) Now, not only did we grow up inheriting this male understanding of God, this God who from time to time would intervene in the affairs of the world, not only that, but nobody in the Western world, nobody, escapes having some knowledge of Jesus. One of the reasons for that, even people who never go to church, because the two big holidays in Western culture are Easter and Christmas. Everybody knows about Easter and Christmas. They've got muddled ideas about it. But, you know, Christmas is the only holiday in the United States that is a religious holiday and a national holiday, the only one. So we know about Jesus. So in that Catholic Mass that day after saying the creed, I thought, that God is dead that we said that creed to, or ought to be. Uh, When I was studying for my doctorate in theology, I had a professor who ranted about two things. They were not about having a daily spiritual practice or about using your turn signals. So he was, he, 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 I forgive him. He did the best he could. No, he was much more intellectually sophisticated and erudite than that. He, he hated two things. He hated that the word church was used to refer to a building church refers to a people a gathered people and if you're going to be consistent with the teaching of Jesus the kingdom of God is a reference to a group of gathered people empowered empowering community of people the word ecclesia from which we get the word church means people called out from removed from so We've lost that, I think. He, I, he gave up on that. He was very frustrated about that. Um, because the church has talked about the kingdom of God, it's pushed the kingdom off into the future, not here. And the kingdom of heaven is even worse because it made it up there and out when you, you could access it only after you died. The other thing he railed against was the use of the word God. And he, along with a host of other progressive theologians, had been influenced by a bombshell of a book that came out when I was in seminary. And the book was titled Honest to God, and it was written by John A.T. Robinson. One of the progressive, as a matter of fact, I think it's the Jesus Seminar, gives an award for progressive theological work, and it's named the Robinson Award after this particular theologian and the, the the blurb on the anniversary issue of this book is certainly true this is probably the most talked about theological book of the 20th century now for those of you who did live through the 60s this is a little look back of that time of secular revolution this book came out then Norms that people thought would stand forever began to crumble. It was the era of the anti-war protest over Vietnam. It was a time of women's lib. It was a time when a book called Lady Chatterley's Lover, there was a trial about whether that book was pornography or not, but mostly it was a time of challenge for the church's dogma claiming that much of it had become hollow and meaningless and so robinson argued that we go at least a generation without using the word god and that's what my professor bought into of course it didn't work but it was a great it was an exciting idea for a while um, that It was just a much, even for progressive, so-called progressive Christians, that was just too much at the time. And so the Protestant church, progressive Protestant church, countered Uh, This was a movement that you have to be my age to remember this, but it was called the Church Renewal Movement that took place in the Protestant, progressive side of the Protestant church at that time. And and one of the most popular books of that movement was by a guy uh, named Keith Miller, and the book was called A Taste of New Wine. Reference to Jesus' parable about the futility and inadvisability of trying to put new wine into old wineskins. Miller is a layperson, person, by the way. He just recently died. But he uh, is responsible for beginning what some people caricatured as a Protestant Vatican II. He got that, that movement started. And the man who does the foreword to this book, Elton Trueblood, was a Quaker philosopher of religion who was very popular and his books were taught in seminary when I was in seminary. Trueblood was a really interesting guy. This is a time the Roman Catholic Church had a renewal movement, indeed called Vatican II, which was very exciting for progressive Roman Catholics an anathema to those who were conservative they even retreated some and then in 1968 two theologians thomas altizer and william hamilton co-authored a book and that book was called radical theology and the death of god that book likely would not have made if you can get a close-up picture of this book you see it how cheap it is it's um, like a dollar 85 or something like that my copy of it Uh, i don't think this book would have made much impact outside of academia had it not been for the fact that time magazine picked up on this movement in theology. I cannot imagine this happening today. And Time Magazine came out with a cover called Is God Dead? Now, Frederick Nietzsche in 1884 had already introduced the death of God, but it never had gotten into the mind of Western civilization. Not in this country, certainly, until this moment when this magazine hit the stands. And this, this is really an exciting time in the church. I still thought my, my career was going to be as a theology professor in seminary. And, and I do not mean what I'm about to say arrogantly, but those of us who were involved in the academic work of studying and teaching theology were not surprised by this. This is old hat because this is the kind of stuff that we had been studying since honest to god came out and all the other theologies that came came with it now <clears throat> i have been a student of the bible either as a lay person or professionally since i was an adult, since i was a kid actually I grew up in church you know that I went to church all the time my parents made me and uh, I was exposed to the Bible in church and I was taught to look to scripture as a source of inspiration and, and guidance and I was very fortunate to have had some very progressive thinking pastors growing up and they were very helpful to me in a lot of ways and they would bring new translations of the scripture into the pulpit and into Bible studies. And I remember when I was in high school that we had uh, Pastor Jim Brewer was his name. He was a model for me. And um, he started using a translation of the Bible called the Moffat Translation. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that or not. But it was an exciting thing to me. It was a different translation. It was fresh. And the books published in the New Testament and the Moffat Translation are published in the order in which they were written. So that was kind of an exciting new thing and it's so so amazing i went to seminary and found out that he wasn't new that he would come out in 1926 but it was new to me and uh when i was in high school i began to get fascinated by translations of the new testament at one time i had 26 different translations of the new testament and uh one of them that i had i don't know if i still have it or not was the jb phillips translation it came out when I was in, in high school. Now, I mention that because J.B. Phillips, when I was in the university, came out with a book called Your God is Too Small. And that book also caused a stir in churches, particularly in like, people, who, people like you. Uh, this is, of course, in the, in the early early 60s. And all of, all of this sort of primed me for the God is dead material that was to come. Philip certainly did not deny the existence of a theistic God. He just argued that our understanding of God was way too small. So all of this that I have told you about, all of it came before we had any awareness of the nature of the cosmos that we have now been given because of the Hubble telescope and because of advances that are going in science. I mean, at that time, we really did think that maybe there was one other galaxy and that was it. And now we know what, there are at least 300 billion others. I mean, our minds have really been changed. I also want to say, I don't want to, um, well, I'll I'll get to that in a minute neither Nietzsche or uh, Altheiser or Hamilton or Phillips or any of the other theologians that I mentioned, they had no idea of the nature of the galaxy of the cosmos that we live in. And their arguments were varied. um, They thought that our understanding of God was a human invention That it needed to be replaced or certainly enlarged or maybe set aside replaced because they they began to say that our current understanding of god was useless and either dead or ought to be that's where the death of god movement started out so i wondered sitting actually mostly standing you mostly stand in a mass i wondered what the other people Attending that mass that day, thought, or if they did, I wonder what the priest thought. I got the impression that he was an itinerant priest, a very small parish, obviously. So he probably went from church to church to church to church to church to do the same homily. But I wondered, um, did God really sit on? Did Jesus release it on God's right hand for these people? Where was this God? Did God hear the prayers that were being offered in that worship service to that day? And more importantly, did God want or need or require the worship ritual that we were doing? Now... <clears throat> It's my humble opinion as well as my observation that the notion of a theistic interventionist God who lives out in space somewhere and occasionally takes a stick and stirs stuff up on the planet, that notion of God ought to die. Or it's already dead for most people. If not, it it ought to be. I think if uh, Time Magazine were to publish the same cover today, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who people would care. By the way, both Alzheimer and Hamilton were driven out of their churches. Um, they were teaching at the time in religiously based uh, universities or seminaries. And they received numerous death threats. I find that so ironic from other Christians, I'm supposing. (laughs) And that really shouldn't surprise us because devoutly religious people have been cheerfully killing other people who disagreed with them for centuries. So it's just ironic. Now, I want to be very careful in what I want to say in the rest of this class today because I have tried, and I think successfully, um, stopped using the word God. I'll tell you what i use in a minute. But um, right now, I'm going to use the word a lot because it kind of fits with what we're doing. And I'm using it as a stepping stone to go into another arena. But one of the things that I have said, I've said it here, I've said it numerous times in the sanctuary across the way, that if there is one thing that I would like to be remembered about my teaching here, it is God is not out there. God is here in us, among us, we're in God, all of that at once. But not, God's not out, out there. But it's important, I think, that we have some understanding of what the word God points to. And, and, and the reality of that grace that God is. Because we live in a world that is increasingly alienated from that reality. So today is the day that I am inaugurating a new theme in ordinary life and I'm calling it making the sacred journey sacred, making sacred the sacred journey. Our lives are sacred. Our earth is sacred. You are sacred. Our neighbor, whom Jesus had a really good definition of, is sacred. And we are increasingly alienated from that sense of sacredness. So I I was talking to Holly and I said, I want to do a new theme and I'm going to call it making the journey sacred. And, And she said, why don't we call it making sacred, the sacred journey? And I said, I like that even better. So this is Holly's idea. And I also have been influenced by the fact of a of a interview I heard with um, Wendell Berry that Bill Moyers did years ago, and Wendell Berry, the poet, said, there are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. We have desecrated the sacred. Now, I want to be clear that in some ways I've caricatured Uh, Altizer and Hamilton they were both very serious theologians they they um, and though they differed uh, they each thought that Jesus was central to their understanding of why God was dead for them Jesus remained central and when I first read them I thought of because one of the theologians that shaped my thinking in seminary was Dietrich Bonhoeffer I thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's phrase about religionless Christianity and and uh, how they were influenced by that Bonhoeffer was a devout Christian who lost his life taking a stand against Nazism our country could use a few prophets like that today so my commitment is to Jesus and his teachings and I think one of our primary spiritual and theological tasks may be just to get out of Jesus' way, and let Jesus come alive, and His teachings and life have evidence in 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 and among us. You know, the people carrying Bibles, the Christian flag, and shouting their allegiance to God as they entered the Capitol on January six were not embodying. The teaching of either Jesus or the best of the Christian tradition. One of my colleagues calls them hatriots <laughs> Spreading hate and waving the flag and misquoting the Bible. Now I know, because I was personally the recipient of some of it, that there was a great deal of upset on the part of some church folks because of the Jesus seminar. Frankly, Robert Funk meant to be provocative. He wanted to be a public theologian and bring biblical studies right into the street, and he succeeded. Um, Not only have I and my teaching, and therefore you, if you've benefited from it, Uh, Been influenced by the work of the Jesus Seminar and the scholars of the Jesus Seminar, but many of them have stood right here and spoken to people gathered in this room. Marcus Borg on two or three occasions, John Dominic Crossan, Shelby Spong on at least two occasions stood right here and spoke, Jesus Seminar members. As I said, I I think if Time Magazine repeated its cover, it would not get much public response today, and that's for a variety of reasons. But not only am I grateful for the Jesus Seminar and the God is Dead movement, and I think most thoughtful people would agree that it's not a good thing to anthropomorphize God, that is, to make a person out of God, which is how most people thought of God. You know, God was a problem solver. You turn to God when you needed something. Like a parking place. Seriously. You know what I'm talking about. Or somebody's seriously ill. Or then you pray to God. But eh, God mostly is not conscious, present. God is a Michelangelo God. A white male that bearded white man extending a potent finger to Adam on the Sistine Chapel and and my reason for not wanting to use the word God and being very careful about prayer is that God and prayer almost immediately remove us from the present say the word God or pray and it's out there not here So after the God is Dead movement began in the 60s, the church, as well as the culture, began to experience some vitally needed changes. Feminist theology came on the scene. And though we've miles and miles to go in this department, women have found and began to finding places in the church of leadership and service. A lot of sexism still to deal with in there. Uh, But women have also found places in politics, and we find out that some of them can be just as crazy as men. (laughs) Black and liberation theology began to come on the scene. It was during the 60s that I went to Union Seminary where a young James Cone lectured. And James Cone said that the church is to remain faithful to its Lord. It must make a decisive break with the structure of this society by launching a vehement Attack on the evils of racism in all forms. That was in 1969. We got miles to go here as well, but it was in 1973 that a black theologian by the name of William Jones asked in a book, which was in Unthinkable Before the God is Dead movement, Jones asked, is God a white racist? Now, for me, one of the great benefits of the God of the Dead movement has been religious pluralism. There was the ecumenical movement that started in the 60s. It's kind of dead now, but Protestants actually began to talk to each other and gave up this, my religion is the best stance. And then Protestants and Catholics began to talk to each other. And then Christians began to talk with people of other faiths, other, other religious organs, uh, ideations. The most beautiful conjoining of this, there are two that I can think of, but one was with uh, Thomas Merton's relationship with Thich Nhat Hanh. They had a great relationship. Merton, his death, his death by electrocution, occurred at an interfaith conference in Bangkok in which he delivered a prayer where he said we're all one, we're just recognizing it. Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, their conversation that's recorded in the Book of Joy, if you haven't read it, it's just so delightful to read. So once a person begins to loosen her or his grip on my way the only way in the right way, then this multitude of doors begins to open. And um, I know this is not the position reflected by the radical right of any religion, but the fact the fact is, it doesn't make the news, but the fact is there's a growing pluralism in this world. That's a good thing. It is not a bad thing for our understanding of God to be stripped of whiteness, maleness, exclusivism, and the power structures that impose heed the expressions of compassion and justice that Jesus taught. So, the question that we're left with is once we embrace the positive gains from affirming the death of God what's left? other words is God still death? Now it's a demographic fact, it's just a fact that the fastest grouping religious growing grouping in this country are the nuns and that is those people who reject some of them with vigor any religious label they will assure you that they are spiritual but not religious to me and this is for another class sometime that's like saying I want to speak but I haven't decided which language to use yet, being spiritual but not religious. We've got to speak. Now, I don't want to ignore the fact that the God is Dead movement has some negative effects. It has had negative effects. There's been exciting and energizing for me. It has certainly been a threat for many people in the church and maybe caused them to double down on traditional beliefs. I have no evidence to prove this, but perhaps this very movement has been responsible for unleashing the energy of the religious right. Because with the church losing its power, maybe some of those people found that what they could do is exercise that power in the political realm, and that's where they've gone. Maybe that's the very thing you see being played out in the split that's occurring in the United Methodist Church right now. So what we see happening in the religious right today is that it is exclusive, unwelcoming of strangers and outsiders, supportive of white supremacy and certainly lacking in compassion and concern for others and so the question is is god still dead okay so one of the things that the god is dead movement convinced me of is that the word exist is the wrong word to use when speaking of god okay so And I hope this doesn't stun you, but God does not exist in the sense that a tree exists or a rock exists or a person exists. Whatever the word God points to is beyond our imagination. It is beyond our conceptualization. So just memorize this sentence. Se non est deus. That's Augustine who says, if you understand it, it is not God. So, what happened in the 60s was a good and necessary thing. I think it still is. It's unwise and unuseful to have notions that are not wise and useful in play. They need to be challenged. They need to be put away. And and yet the question remains, why is there something other than nothing? And how are we related to that something that is? I never see or walk into one of the great cathedrals without wondering where did this come from? Who thought of this? This is one of my favorite cathedrals in all the world. This is the cathedral in Leon, Spain. It's short. I mean, it's a baby cathedral in the sense that this only took 50 years to build in contrast to some of the other cathedrals that took 200 years to build. But you walk into this and it takes your breath away. And, you, and it's may not, this may not be it for you. It may be your baby, your firstborn. It may be a work of art for you. It may be a piece of music. It may be the Grand Canyon. But why is there this miraculous something other than nothing? Why are you? Where did you come from? By the way, this church was built in the 1100s. so They um, didn't have the Internet. They didn't have Google to go to. Have YouTube to get help in how to build it. So, as part of this theme we're undertaking today, making sacred the sacred journey, I want to explore how Jesus and his teachings can help us tap into this question. And not only that, how Jesus and his teachings exemplify the best we can be and become. So, <clears throat> in a few days, and don't do anything about this, please, in a few days, I will be 85. We watched a documentary with uh, David Attenborough on Netflix a few nights ago called The Earth David Attenborough. You know David Attenborough. If you've not seen that, it's really, really, really worth it to see. And I'm borrowing a line from him and that to use in a minute here. But David Attenborough, who's been doing his work for, geez, since he was a very young man, he's documented all this tragic stuff that's happening with our Earth. I mean, it's documented to see decade after decade after decade. He, he says in the beginning of the documentary, he says, I'm 95. His voice is better, his mind is sharper, and I went, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good for you, boy. <laughs> so the 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 phrase I'm borrowing from him, because he says it in that, Documentary is what I want this new theme to be. This is my testimony And and I, I, I got a, a line from um, Paul Tillich I read this book by Paul Tillich when I was in high school I now I now know if my kids had been reading what I was reading in high school I would have seen it as a sign for a psychological intervention but my parents didn't, and so I just read all this stuff. I read Paul Tillich when I was in high school. It's hard for me looking back on that to believe that. And it meant something to me. His two books, The Shaking of the Foundations, and the book where I stole this quote, The New Creation, What's man, this is great stuff. Paul Tillich said, I only want to show you something I've seen and tell you something I've heard, which is, that here and there in the world and now and then in ourselves there's new creation. I am sad and concerned and affected. But not only what's going on in our country today, but what's going on in religion. I'm really heartbroken about what's going on in the Methodist Church. It's just so absolutely unnecessary. I'm not going to amplify on that today except to say um, Jesus never gave up on his religion. and the positives that he saw even in his religion of the day far outweighed any of the negatives and as a jesus follower his teachings and his life are going to be the guide that i will use for these talks his living a life of authentic compassion and justice that's the archetypical story that is in us and that we're called to live I think that if anything what I have become more and more convinced of as I have gotten older and delved deeper into the material is that it's all myth It's a good story and we need it It's not one we have to go invent It's in you it's in me it's in us Our work is simply to allow it to come to be. That's what Jesus taught every step along the way. His primary message was, I am a child of God. That's what I have discovered, and so are you. And if you see in you what I see in you, you will experience the wholeness that you already are. It's a story of generosity and love. It's also a story of the price one pays by choosing love over hate. What's going on at the most visible level of religion today is poisonous and pernicious. It claims that we are part of something bigger. And I wanna say with Jesus as our guide Jesus taught that something bigger is part of us. The religion of our day, which seems to be gaining ascendancy, tries to and does separate and divide. Jesus sought to connect and bring together. The religion of our day says, here's a path to choose, and Jesus taught, here's the path that chooses you. Now, my belief is that we are right the second in a relationship with this supreme mystery. And the word I use instead of God is simple. It's just grace. Thank grace. I'm grateful to grace, touched by grace. Anybody who's been liberated from an addiction knows grace. Anybody who's ridden out a rough storm knows grace. Grace seems more personal and feminine, nurturing than God. Play with it. You know it's uh, whether we nurture that relationship or not is uh, it's up to us, right? And and oh God forbid, in case I haven't mentioned this to you. <laughs> This is what having a daily spiritual practice is all about. (laughs) Nurturing that relationship. The the central message of Jesus' teaching is about love. And and, uh, that's what's going to save us. We will not save, whether it is this earth or each other, what we do not love. And we will not love what we do not experience as sacred. Whether that's the earth or each other. Our religious work, our spiritual opportunity, is developing the skillful means to recognize this every step of the way. We can do this. We must do this. We will make sacred the already sacred journey. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry sacred cargo, so precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. God bless. Thank you.